Farmer Mama 7, thanks for joining us. From Seeds on Film to Secret Sources, this month we journey over Valley and Vale to bring you interesting ideas and experiments in the smaller scale farming world. Ben's got some seed saving tips and tricks. Hannah investigates care farms in her London stomping grounds. We hear the highs and lows of wood chip composts. And Abby, who's still in sunnier climes working with Chilean farmers, uncovers a delicious, versatile and enterprising, but little known, secret source. Can we just clarify? You called it bear juice. Okay, just to be clear, is it from bears? Well, we'll find out later. of seed saving is a great skill to have but it's not always that easy to know exactly how to do it. Ben Raskin has been very excited by a series of short films about seeds in the life cycles of vegetables. 32 kinds. The films explain all about the harvesting, extracting, sorting and storing of seeds. And here he is talking to Nick Bell, one of the team that made them. We are all part of a um, an agricultural a movement of agricultural collectives, I suppose you could call it, which exists in five different countries in Europe, which is called Langomai. Uh, we are in the south of France um, and have a large garden and have produced our own seeds for many years. Um, but uh, we have begun to realise more and more that the know-how about how to make seeds is disappearing fast, particularly of open-pollinated heirloom varieties of vegetables and so on. We are also very much involved in a European-wide campaign against uh, increasingly restrictive European legislation or national legislation on, on the seed question and, of course, against the um, increasing domination of a few large multinationals. Uh, and we see um, the making of seeds, producing of seeds by a maximum amount of people uh, as probably the best way to react to that kind of uh, increasing monopoly. In England, we perhaps think of France as being still more connected to that rural skill and, and rural know-how than perhaps perhaps we are. Is that is that not the case? You certainly have a, a greater attachment, maybe, to, to small farmers, small farmers, the, the paysans, uh, the confederation paysanne, and all this. You also have a movement of. Um, I would say more sometimes urban people or, or also rural people, but more amateurs who are doing a lot of their own vegetables and seed production. It is, as you probably know, officially illegal to sell uh, varieties which have not been registered in the official catalogue. When you make your own seeds in your vegetable plot, you always have far too many seeds, uh, much more than you need yourself. So um, we organise these seed swaps and in fact you quite quickly realise that a lot of people do not really necessarily have the, ne- the knowledge to, to produce seeds. They'll make seeds but they won't necessarily be pure, I mean there'll be a lot of poly- cross-pollination and so on. And, and so we started having training programmes and then we began to more and more think that uh, being able to visually uh, see what seed saving means would be really, really useful. And, and we realised that nobody had really done it. As well as that, 
technical uh, showing how to do it it's also about inspiring and about um, making people want to and, and think that they can and believe that they can yeah because I think a lot of people somehow think that producing your own seeds is really that's professionals have to do that it's far too complicated and they just don't think they can do it you know so really we want to show that it is absolutely possible to do it it's not even that difficult and it's real pleasure actually I mean it just is fantastic to make your own seeds and then plant them and get these amazing vegetables from them and continue uh, actually also selecting the plants that you're particularly interested in and so on I mean it's a very creative process and uh, and it's really possible Nick Bell there with our own Ben Raskin. Nigel, do you save your seeds? Um, no, not currently, Joe. Why not? Uh, my dad uh, does all the sort of arable side of things. I'm more on the livestock. But no, I am, I am planning to... Um, oh, I, I really want to grow some sort of heritage wheat. So it's something that I will definitely be doing um, soon, hopefully. Great. And you can learn all about how to do it by buying the DVD set which you can get at seedfilm.org, so make sure you check that out. I definitely will. and farming naturally go hand in hand and last month we heard about plans for a CSA in the grounds of a hospital and this month Hannah chatted to Rachel Bragg she's development coordinator at Care Farm UK and they provide support services for care farming and they also lobby to raise awareness of this approach I mean, I think uh, care farming is something that some farmers have been doing for years and years and years and not really ever called it care farming. And I think in the last 10 years, we've sort of, it, they've all sort of banded together under the care farming banner, if you like. Um, other farms are starting off by thinking, oh, well, we'd quite like to help some people in the local community. Uh, so they've started doing farm visits or things like that. And they've sort of started dipping a toe in the water, if you like. And then they sort of moved on to, um, develop uh, actual programs with structured facilitated activities for people who are not so fortunate in society um, or people that are um, recovering from drag, drug and alcohol mm. um, addiction or um, children with, um, with on the autistic spectrum um, all sorts of different uh, client groups essentially um, can benefit from spending time outside in nature. I think you're right, actually. Agriculture in the past would have kind of roles for so many different people. And I remember on our farm where I grew up, it, it started off with like a team of 10 men and then people from the community coming in to do paid jobs in picking in the summer. And then things changed in like 10 years and suddenly it was two men and a combine harvester doing the whole harvest in two weeks. So, um, yeah, you, um, a lot of people have, have lost sight of the benefits of that kind of physical work. And obviously the physicality and the mental well-being are really, really, really joined up and uh, perhaps 
we're yes. coming to realise that again. Absolutely. I think it's now um, people are starting to realise or to re-remember, if you like, the, um, the benefits of being outside in nature. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing a bit of a sort of absurgence, really, of, of what we call green care, which is various different ways of using nature um, for health and well-being. So, um, you know, it could be social and therapeutic horticulture or some environmental conservation programmes as mm. an intervention, um, care farming, of course. There are all sorts of different um, types of activity you can do under the banner of green care. And I think the changing in agriculture is also, um, it's forced, especially smaller farmers, well, smaller farms, (laughs) not smaller (laughs) farmers, um, to sort of really think about how they can, or having to think about all sorts of different ways of making their farm viable and doing um, sort of all sorts of different activities. And having people on your farm and and being able to set up a sort of care farming programme can offer another way of um, sort of keeping the farm viable as well. I mean, I always say that if farmers are interested in doing care farming, um, it's usually most of them have started, their initial driver has been some sort of altruistic reason, Mm. you know, wanting to um, sort of help people. Um, And then obviously it's, it's good for people, it's good for farming. You know, the thing about care farming that makes it, say, different from having a B&B on your farm or something is that you're using the farming that you're doing um, to help people and to bring in another income stream as well. We say that the, um, and, and the research shows actually as well, that it's this mix of three things. Um, mm. So it's the, it's the activities, the meaningful activities that people are doing and the skills that they're learning um, in, in doing those. It's the, um, the farm surrounding, so it's the sort of the nature side of it. And it's also the people. When you come onto a farm, right. you become part of a team. Absolutely. And that's what people love. And, you, and um, it's sort of about working together. And it can have an amazing effect and a yeah. change on, on people's lives. I do really like that aspect with, like, a, you know, a, a farm that's actually commercially producing food or working with livestock. It's not tokenistic work. It's work that really needs to be done. And actually, as a volunteer or if you're part of a traineeship or a programme, to be doing something that needs to be done, that's, like, it feels good, I think. I feel like people are trying to connect now with clinical commissioning and, you know, uh, health directors to say, actually, this is a way of potentially saving you money and a better way to go about things. Um, And I I don't know, it would be interesting to talk about the money side of things a little (laughs) bit, if possible. But um, I've seen some reports that are showing, you know, um, what would be paid in NHS services in medication and then potentially people being out of work um, is actually, it's it's high. And if you're putting someone into a a programme, there are chances that they will need be less dependent on these services um, like one of the main drivers in health and social care at the moment is, um, well, obviously we've had all the changes, we've got all the clinical commissioning groups in place now, um, which are theoretically supposed to um, deal with the health and the social care um, commissioning. Uh, but also the, the real driver is for integrated health and social care, and that's perfect. That's what, that's what happens on a care farm. Yeah. It's integrated health and social care. And, um, yes, it's very exciting, potentially, um, because it's an enjoyable option. It's a one that people will, you know, the adherence rates are quite high, and people ah, go back to They go back to it because they enjoy it, yeah. and it doesn't feel like a clinical intervention. And you also have other people who get 
as part of their um, commissioning, they're on person like what we call personal budgets, where they get the money um, that they're going to spend on their health or their social care, okay. and they are allowed to choose where they spend it, and they usually work with their carer or families to decide where they want to be cared for yeah if you like and a lot of them um decide that they want to come to a farm right and they can choose themselves what they want to do typically um farmers get paid about 50 pounds per session um per uh, client again people who need uh, more care the costs might go up you know they do vary but it's about 50 pounds for a session most care farms the session is a day and by a day i mean something like 10 till half past three four o'clock something like that and uh, so in terms of um, being cost effective as well you know there is it's not a really really expensive option but it's something that can as you say lead into um you know people developing skills mm-hmm. developing um a sort of a work ethic sometimes as yeah. well um as sometimes people who've been cared for all their lives you know being able to care for something else themselves is a yeah. completely new experience and um you know it, it's great we're not suggesting that every farm becomes a care farm because some farmers don't want to do it. So some farms, it's just simply not appropriate. Um, but I think it's 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 one of those things that farmers should be aware that um, through farming and, and the use of agricultural landscapes that, that thousands of people are feeling better. Yeah. Uh, you know, care farms. I think we've worked out about sort of seven eight thousand um, people per week go to, go for um, care farming wow. services. Mainstream farming can can do well, really, to remember that there are other farmers that are offering this service, you know, really putting back something back into society. Mm-hmm. Farming gets a bad press a lot of the time. Mm. There's always something. And I think we should be, this is another another thing we should be shouting shouting about from the rooftops to say look this is what farming's doing farming not you know we don't we don't just look after the landscape and um, provide rural jobs um, grow delicious food mm-hmm. um, but we're also helping people you know we, we provide our farmed landscape um, provide area for areas for leisure and recreation loads of people go walking across farmland we're providing all of these services and um, health and wellbeing services through care farming is yet another one um, of the of the uses of farming, really. Yeah. And I think we can we we do well to remember that. Hannah Schlatter speaking to Rachel Bragg. I think care farming is really exciting, and it obviously brings joy to a lot of people's lives. But I can understand that some farmers may see it as just a little odd. It it could sound a bit like farming people when you consider care farming to be your farm's main income. But, as Hannah pointed out, in a way, this service is just another form of health and well-being support. Essentially, farmers can see themselves as providing health services. And, in truth, this framing works quite well, because essentially that is what people who grow our food are anyways. This may be a long shot, but if we think about how much we pay for our health services, then this could be quite a beneficial shift in perspective that meant people would be willing to pay more for farming services. One farmer who's inspired many in the UK organics world is Ian Tolhurst. Tolly! Uh, his farm played host to one of the initial innovative farmers' experiments about the uses of wood chip compost. And we talked to him about this and asked him what it's all about. 
starting with, what's it used for? Primarily for supporting fertility in the horticultural system. Uh, it's fed to the soil, so it's a soil feeder. It's to improve soil quality, soil texture. Uh, there's a little bit of nutrient available, but we're not really looking at nutrients, really more about adding organic matter to soil. And particularly important is adding a range, uh, a whole diverse range of biological activity, particularly soil fauna and fungi, which soil responds to very positively. It's a process which takes about a year or a year and a quarter. It doesn't rely on any external inputs at all. It's run primarily on the sugars and proteins of fresh wood chip. This is trees that have been chipped up, mostly going to waste. And the, the process is dependent primarily on, on wood fungi and bacterial action. So there's no inputs from outside. And the end result is a product which can be spread very safely onto farmland. It can be used in horticulture and it can be used for making a range of propagation composts. The temperature remains quite constant, so it doesn't go very, very hot and then rapidly cool because what happens in, in a normal compost heat where you have a large amount of green material is that you get very rapid heating up and then because it becomes so hot, it kills all the microbiology. So the microbiology tends to die off because of high heat temperatures. In the woodchip system, you don't get the same effect. You get quite high temperature rise, but you get a very low temperature uh, gradient going down. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but it's more because we, we depend on soil fungi rather than nitrogen to rot the material down. Nitrogen is the, the, the driver in conventional compost making. You need lots of nitrogen to, to, to rot down the carbon. In a wood chip system, you're not relying on nitrogen at all because there's none. Effectively, it's carbon and, and carbon only. There's almost no nitrogen. So you're relying on, on wood fungi and soil bacteria, which behave in a completely different way. It can be done on virtually any scale. So the minimum size really would be around five cubic metres and there is no upper maximum size other than the constraints of your site. And what about getting wood chip? Because I know you said you get it from a local tree specialist and I know wood chippers are really, really expensive. Now, a lot of tree surgeons have to pay quite a large amount of money to take their material to either composting sites, municipal composting sites, or to landfill sites. So they have to pay a, a, a fee to deposit. So they're looking for places where there's maybe not such a high fee or no fee at all, and places which are very local to them. It, because they're generally going to municipal composting sites they often have to travel quite a long way and for them that's usually the problem more than the actual cost it's the travel so it's time so they're looking for someone which is on their way home uh, on a daily basis we receive material almost daily during the winter so it's convenient to them the convenience is really more important than the cost of leaving the material behind and can you talk a little bit about your experiment growing things on top of the compost heap yeah, that was a kind of off-the-cuff experiment, really, to try and see if we could maximise or, or optimise some of the heat that was coming from the compost during the winter because it gives off enormous amounts of heat. So during a very cold winter, 2012 it was, we, we did some trials with growing some salads in December, which you wouldn't normally do, on top of the compost heap outside with nothing more than a very thin plastic cover to keep the snow off. And we had some really interesting results in that we were able to grow right away through the winter uh, with, with no supplementary inputs whatsoever, yeah, using wood chip compost as a growing medium in modules and taking the heat from the residual heat from the heap itself in order to keep the plants growing uh, with the higher increased temperature. It's very successful. The only difficulty is in this climate is providing enough light.
because things will grow with the heat, but they get quite leggy. But we did successfully manage to grow some quite good salad crops at the time of year, which we wouldn't normally be doing it. It's interesting to learn about the different types of compost and chatting more with Ian, we realised how little was understood about why the compost behaved as it did or about the different fungi and microbiology working away. We also love the idea of using the compost residual heat for other purposes like growing salad in winter. And now last but not least, the secret sauce. Abby's family farm olives, vines, orchards and vegetable gardens organically in Chile. Everything's dry farmed, except the veg, so whilst the olives continue to grow slowly, they started making natural wine from the very old vines on the land. And then this happened. Bear juice? Did I hear that right? (laughs) No. Bear juice is a French term uh, uh, meaning green juice. And in fact, agras is the Spanish term of well, the Spanish term meaning a bitter juice or bitter. And um, here in Chile, uh, we call it a grass. Okay, so it's verju. And just because you're speaking with a Spanish accent, you say verju. See. One day I happened to be listening to a BBC food and farming uh, podcast and they were talking about berju. Berju being a juice that's uh, harvested or made from grapes or crab apples or some sort of uh, juice. It sounded really interesting. It sounded like something we could give it make. So we set out to have a go. One of the unique things about it is it comes from the time in the harvest, or well before the harvest, early in the season when we're thinning the grapes. So normally those grapes would just be dropped on the ground and not used. So we took these grapes and produces a grass, this very bitter, very sharp, uh, juice that uh, has many, many possibilities. We use it for salad dressings. We use it for tall drinks or cocktails or in cooking where you would use lemon juice or vinegar is commonly used. And it's just a more subtle gentler acidity and doesn't overpower or dominate flavors. It, it, it allows the flavors to be brightened and um, sharpened without dominating them. There's a, a beetroot salad I particularly love that the agrass really enhances. You use it as you would vinegar, so it's not overpowering. So the same ratio. Actually, you can use a little bit more agrass than you would vinegar or lemon juice because it is more subtle. It's a 
wine-friendly condiment. That means if you're having a wine with the meal, you don't want it to be overpowered with the acidity of lemon juice or the acidity of vinegars, and a grass is the perfect solution. We thin the grapes in order to uh, focus the energy on the grapes that we want to make wine with. So by eliminating some of the grapes, the energy of the plant or the vines goes into the grapes that are left and the ones that are removed are obviously removed. <laughs> and so normally they're a byproduct or a waste product, um, but you're actually using them to make a different type of juice. Is that right? That's correct. And that, that grape juice is very, very bitter, very green, and uh, quite firm. And uh, in the firmness, uh, it's one of the issues is how much juice is in those grapes early in the season. Uh, so it's a little bit of a balance as to when to do that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we've gained some experience finding out when, the, when is the best time. And now our grass is maturing in its uh, <laughs> both consistency but also quality. If someone else wanted to make a grass, kind of what do you think are the main learnings or what are the main things to think about? One of the things is what we were just talking about, the timing. Uh, because if you wait too late, the fermentation, the grape, the juice could possibly ferment. So I think very important is finding the right time to do it. Any tips for the actual making of it? Because I know that some people, for example, uh, would just, uh, in a similar way to wine, they put sulfates in at the end of the process to prevent fermentation. Um, are you doing that? No. We simply do oh, what we would consider a very natural process of, of harvesting the grape, crushing the grape, pressing it, getting the juice, and... Uh, than simply taking that juice and bottling it. You can, and it may be necessary also to pasteurize some of it, depending on what you're doing with it or where you're sending it or who wants it. It is amazing. made, And surprisingly, it's really nice on a fruit salad or with fresh fruit chilled, a little bit of a grass. Lovely. For me, the basically the most exciting thing is that it's very simple to produce in many ways, and yet it has uh, real unique quality. It brings this kind of not just freshness, but sharpness to uh, a range of different foods and drinks that is just special. That was Tom and Christine, or Mum and Dad, as they're known to Abby, talking about this very special condiment, verju, verjuice, or a graz. 
the ultimate secret ingredient. It's really not that easy to find verjus or grass in the UK, but you can go to our website www.vidacycle.com to find out more, or try making some yourself with some unripe grapes or crab apples. Plus, we would be happy for you to get in touch, and we can share more about what we've learned in our years of making a grass. Thanks for joining us this time. Remember, we want to hear from you. Keep sending your recordings and ideas as you really make the show. We're already spreading our roots far and wide, and we'd really like to keep this up. We know you're listening to us all over the place, from New Zealand to China, Norway, and loads of you in the States. If you've got a story to share, get in touch and we'll work with you to get it on air. And please, please help us spread the word and share Farmeram with the world. Let's knit an ever wider web of people who understand the importance and resilience of smaller scale farming. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And over to Chile. It's goodbye from Abby. Toodaloo for now. I'll be back next month. Excited to be back in the UK. <laughs>